This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Merry Christmas, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan Moore, and today we begin our short Advent series entitled, What God Is This? Our message today is the God of Humility, and today is Sunday, December the 4th, 2022. And once again, I thank you for joining with us. In 1865, William Chatterton Dix, in England, wrote a poem called, What Child Is This? What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? For this, this is Christ the King, whose shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Of course, the poem would become the song that would become one of the most beloved Christmas carols um, in the English language. Friends, today is the second Sunday, actually, of Advent, the time of year that Christians for centuries have celebrated the coming of the Christ, the miracle of the Word made flesh, the birth of the baby Jesus, the silent night that was anything but silent. And as you very well may know, the traditional themes of the Advent celebration are hope, peace, joy, and love. And today, actually, is the Sunday of Peace. And friends, this is the miracle that we, fallen humanity, may once again have peace with God and peace with each other through what began on that night, clothed in humility, when the God of the universe consented to take on the fullness of humanity, the fullness of the human experience. But that's not all. When we ask, what child is this? The answer isn't just that in Christ, God became fully human. But that being human in the physical life of Jesus, we behold the fullness of God. You know, from its earliest days, the Christian movement, the church, proclaimed this truth. The mystery that Jesus Christ was both fully human and fully God, fully divine at all times. We see this truth, of course, throughout the New Testament. We've been going through the book of Colossians here over the last several months. And in the beginning of next year, we'll see in Colossians 2, 9, where Paul writes, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Right In the human life of Christ, we see the fullness of God. John chapter 14, 9 and 10, of course, there's famous conversation with Philip where Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. For I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. When we see Jesus, we see the fullness of God. In Christ, we see the clear, definitive image of who God is, his nature, and his purpose. And friends, the implications of this are profound. And so when we behold the baby in the manger, we can not only ask, what child is this, but what God is this? Think with me for a moment. If I were to ask, what are some different images of God that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament? What comes to mind? You know, we may think of the concept of God as an all-powerful creator, You know, there's the famous image of the storm over Mount Sinai where God is so powerful that you would drop dead if you even looked upon him or began to approach him. Of course, there's the burning bush with Moses where God was holy, unapproachable, 
Moses had to take off his shoes, keep a safe distance as he had that famous conversation with God. Maybe it's an image of God as a righteous judge sitting on the throne, judging the nations. You know, one concept of God that's always been popular for some people for, for, for many, many centuries and actually has been increasingly invoked by some in the past years is the image of God as a conquering king violently destroying his enemies. You can go back into Psalm 21, and of course this has an important context. Verses 8 and 9, David here is praying to God, and David says, Your hand will lay hold on all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. And when you appear for battle, you will burn them up as in a blazing furnace. The Lord will swallow them in his wrath, and his fire will consume them. That's very evocative language. In Revelation 19, verses 11 through 13, another just um, very iconic image of Christ as this conquering warrior, where the writer says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and his head on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Right? And the blood that the road is dipped in is the blood of the nations who have been destroyed. And friends, we read this, and it can be so easy to think, yes, God is going to punish the wicked, destroy his enemies. And often by this we may mean God is going to destroy our enemies. You know, it's not hard to find many sermons where the preachers almost delightedly will declare how God soon will vanquish the sinners and the unrighteous, and only the faithful will be spared, referring to, of course, ourselves. You know, the history of Christianity is uncomfortably filled with highly militaristic language of the church as soldiers of Christ engaging in a battle against the sinners and unbelievers. As a child, I can remember joyfully singing the hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. Right? Does that come to mind? Onward Christian Soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. Forward into battle, see his banners go. And at the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then Christian soldiers, on to victory. My friends, this is a language and thinking employed by Constantine as he violently and forcibly, quote, converted the Roman world to Christianity. This is the thinking, right, the language behind much of the Crusades, the Inquisition. In American history, you can read source documents where generals destroying Native American villages, engaging in ethnic cleansing, did so in the name of eradicating paganism and preparing the American West for God's people. You know, at a lower level, or at a more ubiquitous level, this is so commonplace in our own culture today. Right? We've all heard the phrases, culture wars, right? our natural debates framed in terms like fighting against the enemy. Just in this most recent political cycle, the midterm elections, just so much, um, so much language, even here at a local level, of candidates saying, I will fight against you, I will fight for you, right? against your enemies here in our own community. You know, in a speech not long ago, a likely upcoming presidential candidate that some of you may really like, right? He quoted the Ephesians full armor of God passage. 
basically, right, virtually explicitly equating his political opponents to Satan, who are evil and must be warred against, must be vanquished. My friends, a line that crops up every now and then is the idea that Christ came the first time as a lamb, and he will come again as a lion. Right, The first time he came in love for believers, and he will return in wrath for my enemies. You know, this idea comes from Revelation 5. But when we actually look at the passage, we see the opposite point being made. This is Revelation 5, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat at the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. My friends, you can feel the drama in this passage. Of course, if you go read Revelation 5, it's the, the writer is having a vision of the throne room of God, right? The majesty and the power of God. And most evangelicals believe this to be the opening of God's violent judgment of his enemies during the tribulation. And it's Christ as a powerful lion who will carry out the judgments. And in this scene, the elder seems to cry out, look, the lion of Judah, there he is. But the scene doesn't stop there. John looks, but he doesn't see a lion. Verse 6 says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Oh, my friends, the image here couldn't be more counterintuitive or more Christ-like. Rather than seeing a lion ready for war, we see the crucified lamb. Jesus is indeed the Lion of Judah, but his nature, his character, how he engages those who have rebelled against him is through his sacrifice, the cross, his radical servanthood, his humility. This is the image of Christ, of God, that we see at the heart of the Christmas story. In Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, of course, we read, while they were there, The time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest guest room available for them in the inn. Friends, the nativity scene is so iconic that it's easy to miss the power of its meaning. Friends, this is a story of poverty. It is a story of people suffering through governmental edicts. It is a story of class injustice, of rejection, of suffering, and humiliation. And these are stories experienced across the totality of humanity. You see, this is one of the great significances of the setting of Christ's birth. It is just so intensely human. It is a painting of the deep struggle of the human condition, the very struggle from which Christ would do everything necessary to set us free. So yes, in Scripture, we do find images of God as the righteous judge, the unapproachable deity, the powerful conqueror. But church, 
the definitive image of God, the great essential reality of God to which all other concepts of God must bow. And by the way, just let me parenthetically add, what I just said there is a very significant statement. And if that is something you want to talk to me about, give me a call. Let's have a cup of coffee. So let me say it again. The definitive, the definitive image of God, the great essential reality of God to which all other concepts of God must bow. The event which more than anything else reveals God in the, full, in the fullness of his nature and character, my friends, is the incarnation, the miracle that God is with us. Incarnation is such an important word. The root, carne, of course, means flesh. The incarnation, right, is the event of God taking on human form, human flesh and blood. Not just Christ's birth now, but the entirety of the Christ event, from his birth to his death, through the resurrection and the ascension. You know, this is what the apostle John spoke of when he wrote in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, the Logos, that was God in union with the Father, the fullness of grace and truth. God in Christ took on flesh, took on all of humanity, and came to us to be with us as one of us. As Matthew said in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, you have heard that, you know this, but think of it, God with us. Without this truth, there is no Christianity, and there is no understanding of the nature and character of God. You see, many world religions, ancient mythical systems, had the idea of God or, or gods that came down and walked among humans in disguise as a human, right? pretending to be human. But this is not the story of Jesus. The New Testament is unique in proclaiming consistently that in the incarnation, God in Christ became fully human. God came to be with us as one of us, and in doing so revealed the fullness of his glory. My friends, this assertion that while remaining fully divine, Christ took on the totality of human frailty, this is what Paul most clearly describes in the famous passage of Philippians chapter 2. There's a concept that we're going to see here that I'm going to take us a little deep into. And it's one of the most important words that every Christian should understand. But unfortunately, I think many people don't. And in the Greek, the word is kenosis. Directly translated, it means self-emptying. In the NIV, this is translated that Christ made himself nothing. In the New American Standard Bible, they translate it that Christ emptied himself. And my friends, this is the reality that when we think of all the images of God's nature that we could describe, his majesty, his power, his wrath, right, all of the omnis, when we look at, when we look at the New Testament, 
What we see revealed through the incarnation of the Christ, above all these other concepts of God, is the nature and glory of God as humility. For this is the miracle of kenosis. When we ask the question, what God is this? The answer comes that he is the God of humility. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. I know many of you could probably almost draw this from memory, if not completely from memory. And this is what we read. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. That's the phrase. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And of course, the passage goes on to describe that Christ humbled himself by going to the cross. Church, this is so incredibly important, and not just from a theological standpoint, right? The implications for our lives, how we understand God and how God works through us, these implications are huge. So let's look just a little closer. What does Paul mean when he said that Jesus self-emptied himself? You know, one predominant theory is that Jesus' kenosis was authentic but temporary. And the understanding of the passage would be something like this. For eternity past, God was the all-powerful, almighty king of the universe who reigned from heaven. Emphasis emphasis here on God's omnis, right? He's omnipotent, um, omnipresent, omniscient. This is God's nature. Then, in the incarnation, God in Christ, the Son, temporarily set aside his all-powerful nature and became meek, self-sacrificial, even weak, as he humbled himself to the point of death. Then, after defeating death in his resurrection, Jesus returned to heaven and returned to the nature of being all-powerful. And when Christ returns, it will not be as he was here before, but it will be returning as the conquering king. Now, this sounds right, right? And I and others, not just me, would argue that it almost is. Because, guys, the emphasis here is that this understanding, the nature of God that we see in Jesus, was temporary. Right? It was temporary. But what if that's not the case? In his book, A More Christ-Like God, um, author and theologian Bradley Jerzak asked the question this way, what if Jesus' humility, his meekness, and servant heart was not a temporary departure from God's glory and power, but rather fully defined and demonstrated God's glory and power. For make no mistake, God, and Jesus as God, is all-powerful. God is almighty. God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. But what if God's underlying essential nature, his purpose by which he expresses his power, is through kenosis. What if God's expression of of his eternal power and glory is exactly what we see in Jesus? Self-emptying power, self-giving love, and radical servanthood. What if this is the very heart and nature of God? And friends, what if God does indeed rule and reign, but not through imperial power, 
not through coercion, control, or force, or violence, but through the self-emptying, self-giving, servant love of kenosis, seen most fully through the cross. Church, this is a very different concept of God than the way he is often portrayed. And this concept of God is more than just a what if. It is the testimony of the New Testament. If we go back for just a moment to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, here Paul is saying that in his bodily form, in who Jesus was and how he lived with us in his 30 years upon this earth, this is the fullness of God. This is the clearest revelation of the glory of God. Now, on that point, the glory of God, I want you to look with me at another passage. And this is key. It's John chapter 17. This is at the end of Jesus' gathering with his disciples. Of course, they're in the upper room right before they would depart for the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was going to be arrested. And as we begin the chapter, um, John tells us that Jesus looks toward heaven and he prays. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. My friends, did you see that? What is the hour that has come that Jesus refers to? Well, it is the cross, right? Jesus' death, the greatest point of his humility, his self-giving sacrifice, and his human weakness. And in this prayer, Jesus reveals that it is that very hour, that event, that nature that he's about to express that would, be, that would bring glory to both the Father and God the Son. And this is the key statement. When Jesus says that he and the Father would be glorified, he is saying that through what was about to happen, the fullness and essence of God's nature was going to be revealed. In verse 4, Jesus says to God the Father, I am going to bring you this glory by finishing the work you gave me to do. Well, what does that refer to? Again, it's the cross. Then in verse 5, Jesus declares the glory about to be revealed through the cross in the very presence of God. This is the same glory he shared with the Father before time even began. In other words, the definitive demonstration of God's glory, right? the revelation of God's identity, his nature, who he is, that we see upon the cross. Friends, this is the same glory in the nature of God that has existed for all eternity. Just to restate that, the loving humility of Christ on the cross is not a temporary departure from God's nature. It is the very nature of who God is. Church, that has all sorts of implications. But for the rest of Advent, we are going to focus on just one. If the self-giving, sacrificial, and humbling love of kenosis is the very nature of how God in Christ sees us, 
then this is also the way Christ in us will lead us to see other people, will lead us to engage the world around us. You see, by the Holy Spirit, God will give us eyes with humble vision. You know, it's so tempting to see the world around us as enemies to be conquered, but that is not the heart of Christ. Jesus' heart in us will see the world around us through the lens of loving humility, through the lens of his loving humility. Likewise, our actions, how we engage with and relate to people when we are being led by the Spirit of Christ in us, our actions will look like how Jesus engaged with and related to people. At the beginning of our passage in Philippians 2, Paul said, In your relationships with one another, with the people of this world around you, be like Jesus. In his first letter, John put it this way. This is 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Not John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And my friends, consistent with the greater testimony of the New Testament, I would add to that, this is how the Spirit of Christ in us will lead us to engage and relate to the people of the world around us, to lay down our lives. Church, we started today by seeing the loving kenosis of Jesus through the humility of his birth. In the coming weeks of Advent, we will see this same love through other examples from Jesus' life. But for now, thanks again for joining with us. And I pray this week, we all, you and I, that all of us, that we may just see one way that Christ would express his love of kenosis, his kenotic love, to use that phrase, through us. Church, I love you. Have a wonderful week. And we'll see you again next Sunday.